Hang on. So I've got I've got it on my screen now. Wait and we're recording. Good morning, everybody. Here we are in lockdown, you know, the redux, whatever. And uh, so we thought we might as well just sort of start the paper sort of academic arches on the bus again. I've got to say a massive thank you to Catherine and all the prefects who kept the conversation going all the way through since last lockdown. If the prefects that are here want to give a wave so everybody knows who they are, thank you so much. <laughs> You've done sterling work, you really have. Um, we're, we have these sessions booked in for the next three weeks and then let's just see what happens in lockdown, I guess, and see how we want to keep going if we go into December, which of course we all hope we don't. Um, we've got one paper per week um, and then it will open up into some more sort of general chat. Um, and yeah, the paper part of it will be recorded and we'll make that into a podcast. And I'll get that out at some point later on in the same day of recording. Um, you should all be okay by Zoom by with now, but obviously just a reminder, while people are talking, keep your uh, your mics on mute. That would be fantastic. Um, and if you want to ask a question, I'll be looking at the chat. So you can pop a question into the chat. And then there's also a thing where you can raise your hand as well. So there's a little blue hand that you can raise and you you get that through the clicking on participants, I believe it is, if I remember rightly. Um, anyway, so we're starting off with an absolute tour de force, but not one of the perhaps easiest subjects that the Archers is uh, dealing with at the moment. And um, we're talking about the Philip Moss storyline, and it is our very own Nicola that is talking about this. And this comes from her book, um, her chapter rather, from our next book, Flapjacks and Feudalism. Nicola, over to you. Can you see it? Yeah, you can see it. Oh, excellent. Good morning, everybody. And thank you very much for your Saturday morning. It's lovely to see everybody. So I'm going to get, so as Cara said, the, the, the chapter in the book, um, I slightly took um, chair's privilege. When we were looking at what we had for flapjacks and feudalism, we realized that we didn't have anything on the horses storyline, which obviously has been intense over the last couple of years and was coming to you know the fore again. And it's all very well talking about economic exploitation and structures and all the rest of it, but having um, the horses right in the midst of the village, um, it, it seemed like a massive gap. So I looked into it, the chapter, in the book is much more about the sort of policy response in this country, which is fascinating. Um, as everybody knows, these big meaty um, public information storylines, they work with NGOs, the writers, and they work very closely with a number of NGOs on the storyline. Those NGOs in another sort of worlds colliding thing have done been quite active on Twitter while the story is unfolded, offering links and advice and information. We had a bit of a chat about this last week uh, with the prefects, and I was saying I can't believe nobody in Amber has ever heard of, it, it hasn't heard of modern slavery since, you know, I get my nails done, as you very well know, and you can't go into a nail bar without a statement on modern slavery. If you get your car washed, car washers have statements on modern slavery in the car wash. It's a very interesting kind of, um, there's been a lot of work done it in the last few years. So, um, this paper, however, this morning, well, I'll get into it, shall I? So as Cara said, it's in the book. The, the best thing about the book, I think, is just how reassuring this pink and red, it looks almost like a, a tampon wrapper or something, you know, very gentle, 
the, the beautiful flapjacky um, house. We did, there was, it was impossible to, there was also a kind of flapjacky castle because we wanted to demonstrate small house to big house, but it just couldn't work and we were gutted about that. But, you know, this is, as usual with our books, come for the kind of twee, twee kind of archersness and stay for the hardcore social theory because this one more than the others. In fact, we're really proud of it. We're in the final edit and it's saying some really, really chunky things about housing, about work, about life um, in Ambridge and beyond. And it doesn't pull its punches. I'm saying I'm really proud of it. The second uh, picture infographic, there is the uh, accusation that academic archers are obsessed with housing. Well, yeah, we are. <laughs> um, we have the amazing Claire, whose who's sort of policy knowledge on the housing sector is, is far more up to date than Caro and I, but since our sort of roots have been in housing and planning and all that kind of thing. What I'm talking about this morning, um, as well as the ob obvious precarity and vulnerability of the horses, is that, which, which I'm not going to use again, by the way, I'm going to give them their names because it's horrific <laughs> that they're no more important than livestock. Um, is that there is a, some very, um, very difficult stuff in the structural economy of this country, um, which, the, which the virus actually has, has laid quite bare. So I'm going to, well, that's what we're talking about. So health warning, this is bleak. Now, it's always been my um, a sort of my way, whether it's right or wrong, is um, you know, deep engagement with the kind of horrors of the world kind of helps me deal with the world. But I mean, economic exploitation on the scale that it exists in the world ought to appall us. It's, a, it's an outrage. And this has been on my mind for the whole pandemic. Um, you'll be aware of the Black Lives Matter movement. Then there was a sort of black backlash, all lives matter. Why, why should it just be because of the melatonin content of your skin? But I saw this in the Northern Quarter in Manchester and it's been bothering me since. Some to this, this statement, no lives matter. That's to do with people not feeling like they, they matter at all, that they participate in the economy, that they're even really citizens uh, if no lives matter. I mean, it's a straightforward sort of nihilistic approach. And somebody who happened to have a Sharpie in their back pocket wasn't me, promise. I wouldn't ever affect graffiti in this way. No, it's not nihilistic. All lives matter. Everybody matters. And I think that there's something in this piece of graffiti that as I say, I've been carrying in my head all year because, oh, I'll come on. So warning two, because there is a chunk of this which is to do with critical race theory, this is deeply subversive. I mean, why on earth the government would have sort of want to run a culture war against structural approaches to inequality at a time when structural um, approaches to inequality are so rampant, I mean, God forbid, but, you know, as I say, there's a dispatch box talking about he shouldn't teach Black Lives Matter, he shouldn't teach anti-capitalism, because these are contested political ideas. Um, so, obviously, it would be deeply subversive of me to tell you to listen to the Talking Politics podcast, which has got um, a brilliant episode. So David Runciman does the Talking Pol Politics pod podcast, um, and he's got a piece on Franz Fanon, and I would really recommend that if you're interested at all in the sort of notion of necropolitics and and uh, 
and all of that. Warning three, I am a sociologist. So I did. The, I ran through this yesterday with my colleague who, bless him, does, does do a lot of archers uh, nodding his head. Um, all sociological facts are essentially contested. So the quote before from the minister was that you can't, shouldn't teach Black Lives Matter because it's contested. Basically, the nature of reality is contested, I think, and that's a sort of, um, that's, that's, a, that's a basic premise. And then this from Simmel, which I use all the time, and any time that you're pulling a thread for a social fact, that has got an economic side, an aesthetic side, and a psychic side, by which he means internal, it doesn't mean, you know, Ouija board, but he means that the way it's played out in the individual. And I don't know, I've been thinking about this as well, I'm sure you'll tell me in the chat and in the, the, the um, uh, afterwards what you think. Certainly on a subject like this, if you're focused on structural explanations, is it that you're crowding out moral responsibility? So I'm going to talk in a moment about neoliberal necropolitics, about the ways in which supply chains are stretched, the way, the way that slavery is incredibly prevalent in the economy. But does that excuse Philip, who has made judgments clearly consistently daily for years, that he will hold people in a state of being subhuman uh, or being, you know, forced being enslaved? So um, I don't want, maybe this, we can talk about this. So I don't talk very much about Philip's motivations. I kind, I guess, and this is always the problem with a structural explanation, is that you end up thinking, well, this is the kind of, this is the, the economic determinism behind it. So it may, seems maybe more rational that Philip would work in this way. Obviously it's horrific and it's a moral affront, but um, so we'll see. And, and we talked last week again about, uh, with, with the prefects about how redeemable Gavin is. And I mean, there isn't, there isn't much on that either, but we can talk about all that stuff. So there we are, warning, it's bleak, it's illegal and it's sociological. So, you know, if you're still here, then hurrah. So this is the crisis moment, 22nd of May, 2020. We all heard it. I think it was a Friday night, wasn't it? That's not how some people will see it, Dad. They'll say they are slaves. Philip growls, don't use that word. And that brought uh, to the sort of dramatic climax the breadcrumbs that we'd had laid for us for years about there was something very wrong with the way that Moss Bros ran their, ran their business. Um, in this, it demonstrates not only that, the, that Philip and Gavin are aware that the forced labor practices they're using could be seen as slavery by others. So don't name it, God don't go there. And it's sort of any last shred of kind of mitigation in terms of what was going on there fell away because they know what they're doing. And that was in May and my God, they've strung it out, haven't they? We can talk about that, God. Anyway, so what I did at the time was, and as I say, what's in the chapter is I had a look, is so very, so part of the reason that you can tell that it's a public interest storyline in the Archers is that they do it incredibly well. And when they, and, and it's, it's back to the sort of unevenness that's been spoken about quite a lot in Dumpty Dum recently, you know, it's so frustrating that they'll do something like this unbelievably well, like the coercive control storyline or something like that. And then they just sort of, the bits that they don't really think about are, the, are where the errors kind of crop up and where it gets annoying. They've been pitch perfect on the slavery storyline, I must say. 
And as I say, the NGOs that have worked with them um, are very proud of how they've managed to uh, say breadcrumb this storyline for years. But what I essentially argue in, in the chapter is that the insidious tentacles of slavery flourish. Oh, hang on. I can't see the end of my slide. So I can see if it's um, flourish within business models which squeeze margins at every turn in the supply chain. The prevalence of modern slavery speaks of a wider form of neoliberal necropolitics. So necro and politics. So the simplest um, version of necropolitics is just who gets to live and who gets to die. And this is, um, and logics of accumulation. So, you know, exchange, trade, hierarchy, capitalism. Uh, and hierarchy are played out on the bodies of workers. And this is, this is really important stuff. And the sort of turn in sociology where rather than just talking about ideas as sort of floaty things, they are pulled down into the cellular structure of both those who might benefit and those who may um, get the fuzzy end of the lollipop. So, so it's something about the embodiment of ideas that's really key and slavery really um, brings it home because obviously Blake, Kenzie and Jordan are um, embodying, you know, being subjugation in the kind of most, um, most raw uh, sense. So the Chartered Institute of Builders, it, obviously, you know, other variants of capitalism at other historical moments have had all kinds of mechanisms to avoid the kind of rank exploitation of the bodies of the workers. And it's interesting, the Trust Institute would be sort of, you know, essentially those, those sort of professional bodies have a lot to, um, have a lot of um, history with like the guilds and, the, and all the things, and, and early unions, all the ways in which you would protect workers against exploitation, which are in the roots of sort of mercantilist capitalism, certainly. So they did a really big report and honestly it's really mad it's just extremely good reading um but this is from the preface uh this is the, the chair of the charles institute builders construction it's a bipolar industry on the public side we create inspirational buildings pushing the boundaries of architecture and technology and solving ever more difficult challenges the dark side is the systematic exploitation of millions of vulnerable workers. It's rarely acknowledged, especially by the clients and multinationals that commission our shiny new cities. Uh, this, this piece is arguing that human rights abuses, bonded labor, delayed payment, terrible working and living conditions are, are prevalent globally within construction. And that's partly because of the points of the neoliberal playbook, outsourcing, squeezing every, every issue of the, of the supply chain, and there, and there, this this horrible this horrible last bit, the most the, the the plight of the most vulnerable gets lost among long complex supply chains. Uh, and again, that's that's a um, looking a kind of across the world. This is also from the same report, and again, it's again more elements. It's again outsourcing agency labour and bogus self-employment. God, I mean that's been that's like gas been blown this year, hasn't it? So um, Jill Wells here says. Construction work is hard, and where workers have a choice, people do not want to do it. Um, and, it and when I was reading this, um, it felt very close to home, right? This is exactly what we've seen with Blake, Kenzie, and Jordan. They've been um, forced to work for, you know, we, we assume very little remuneration. They are controlled, and they are... 
and uh, the reason I, I, you know, their their money is not not theirs to control. Some workers are not paid for months, years, or until the job's done. Many are literally starving. So again, I, I wondered if Jules Wells was not here because that was exactly the point which led to the crisis, which exposed the use of forced labour in Ambridge. Um, and as I say, the, the title of the piece is Feeding the Horses because the, the fact, well, okay, sorry, we'll go on. So I can't remember the date, but it was in May this year because it was before um, we heard that bit from Philip and, uh, and Gavin. This was the crisis. And I argue, again, I said it was bleak, that crises in general, so um, this is like sort of shock doctrine of Naomi Klein and uh, other um, commentators have pointed out that the moments of crisis uh, lay bare some of the assumptions that sit underneath uh, structural inequality. So if we just consider for a moment here, we've got the Grey Gables explosion in the middle, as I say, I showed you there, boom. Above, we've got Linda Snell. Good old Linda, almost back to normal. If we think about her storyline since the explosion, this has clearly been like the worst thing that's ever happened to her. She's had punishing and grueling physical rehabilitation. The psychosexual consequences of her body has changed. Her selfhood, her public self, has been difficult when she's you know it's out in the village and it's miserable. She's been vulnerable. She's had to adapt to loss of hair. They've had to remodel their Ambridge Hall and presumably, you know, maybe even change the access to the shepherd's hut. This is, this though is the worst thing that's ever happened to Linda, this, the physical injury. And that is in the context of the crisis of the explosion. However, if we compare <laughs> the everyday life and, and how horrific life would have been for Blake in this period, he was nameless at the beginning. Nobody knew who he was. If you remember, there was several episodes of, you know, oh, mate, uh, uh. he was starving. Physically, he was starving. He did something which, you know, heat plus solvents creates an explosion. He did something that you would probably have been able to rationalise wasn't a very good idea if you were able to have that kind of reasoning available to you. He nearly died. He was rescued. He was hospitalised. He was told the thing was his fault. He was coached and he was threatened. He, he was out of hospital before he was better, working with his back not right. My God, anyone that's ever worked with their back not right, even if they sit at a desk. And, and we think now he's been sold on, or at least it was discussed that he was going to be sold on. Now, what I, the reason that I compare the trajectories of Linda and of Blake, I, so I'd, I'd just like to say I would like to ban the phrase first world problems because I think it is a form of violence against distress because we can all experience se severe distress and that shouldn't be uh, ignored. And she's had a really distressing time, right? But she had a loving family and a roof over her head and the esteem of the community for when she was ready to come back. Blake, for it, Blake, however, his everyday life, his non-crisis existence is horrific and he's down to the bones of bare life. And that, um, I'll come on to say something about bare life, but you know, you wouldn't want to be Blake on his best day. In fact, okay, I'd suffice to say, you'd want to be Linda on her worst day more than you'd want to be Blake on his best day. 
arguable, we can discuss. And the pandemic has served this year to do exactly the same thing, right? So thank God, there but for the grace of God, etc. The you know, we are Lindas in this situation. It's been very um, difficult in lots and lots of ways for many of us. And we're all kind of holding on to our last nerve. But if you have secure housing and employment in the pandemic, you're having a, a, a difficult but manageable time. I mean, okay, we can talk, we can discuss that. Meanwhile, <clears throat> you know, pandemic life on one's best day, or sorry, on one's worst day, would still be better than the life of an enslaved person um, on, on, their, on their best day, again, discuss. So, so this is, uh, so COVID-19, it has highlighted in an extraordinary way, many of our society's necropolitical assumptions and, and the reason that the virus is, is salient and, and the explosion was salient is that you push them aside when things are normal because there's always scope for limited room for negotiation and negotiation that is um, partly <laughs> you couldn't tell yourself there's a story that you can tell yourself but um, given that we're down to sort of everybody's down to their, their last nerve um, we need to think through the roles and rules that are available within late capitalist or um, neoliberal ne necropolitics. And the very, very bold question, why are some lives worth more than others? Who lives and who dies? And what are the structural patterns of inequality sitting behind the cri crises? And arguably, anyway, we'll go on to so, say, I might skip through some of this because this is probably just my pandemic uh, paranoia, my big rant about the kind of extremely vexed position that we've got key workers in because I thought saw this in Manchester um, when I was walking the other day. I just thought that's a very reassuring, happy poster. Why on earth is it on a 15 foot barbed wire fence? Like, who, are they trying to keep the key workers in or keep other people out? I didn't really get it. It kind of really played with so this aesthetic I find extremely um, troubling. And this one as well is next to it, calling them frontline warriors. You know, I just, you know, they're just people that can't uh, get round the fact that they have to keep leaving the house to do their jobs because they, if they stop, they're screwed. Um, and, you know, if you remember in former times, everybody spent their whole time with these, I mean, apparently, big surprise there was a director of communications who's just left left number 10 let, let alone who it was anyway but this was the point it started to there's this feeling um particularly that some people haven't had a lockdown some people haven't been furloughed they've carried on through the pandemic at taking risks and what we're seeing in the recovery is this weird k-shaped recovery under which and it's a bit reflecting some of the stuff in the states under which the stock market goes up 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 but then real livelihoods go down, 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 down. So the, and the K-shaped recovery for my sins is what I've work, been working on every day. Uh, and so Judith Butler, St. Judith, um, warns us that the pandemic reveals the death drive at the heart of the capitalist machine. We'll keep moving. So again, you don't want to see my ranting about key workers and but, but again, tier two is middle-class people staying home and poor people bringing them things. I'm afraid that's 
I've done that this morning. I've had a I've had a coffee and a nice pastry brought by key workers who are black and brown and who can't stay at home. We'll keep moving. So I'll keep going. What I think is interesting though, and this is a, something modified from the chapter, it's very easy and tempting to just be like, Philip is a monster, Blake, Kenzie and Jordan have been heinously um, exploited. But actually, if you look a bit deeper, nearly everybody, the younger people in Ambridge, and this is where the housing policy point gets picked up, um, the relationship between uh, traded labor and housing in Ambridge is extremely vexed. You've got the horses at the top, who are men who aren't paid and are, you know, kidnapped and held in a house. But there's examples of precarity in other people's work, life, housing situation. And again, and this is partly to be provocative, but Rex driving an Uber, you know, under which that's piecework. We all know the sort of attacks on Uber as an employer how difficult that all that is to, for drivers to kind of find collective cause. Um, you know, these are, these are sort of the more acceptable faces of precarity in the economy, but they're still not going to pay to put a roof over your head or to put a roof over your head in a meaningful way. Um, so, and, and then I was thinking about William as a gamekeeper because, you know, the sort of old school kind of, you know, son of the soil stuff. You wouldn't be paid very much, but they'd pay for your housing and you were the gamekeeper. So I put this up just to sort of think through that there are there is a continuum of precarity in the village. But most people under a certain age, whether or not the Ambridge Ferry has waved their wand, are have some some um, dysfunction compared comparing their 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 wage labor and their housing costs. I will put that there for discussion. And I'm going to skip because, again, the chapter says much more about all this stuff. But um, I don't, if I haven't convinced you by now that there is something fishy about the way that some lives matter more than others and how that, that is both racialized and in terms of uh, the, the link being broken between labor and housing, then I don't know, really. It's been a waste of, a, of your morning. <laughs> so and the, this, is, this is defining precarity. I use the term precarity a lot, but again, Judith Butler, as we reach for descriptors on intensified social marginalization, precarity has come to name the politically induced condition in which certain populations suffer from failing social and economic networks. So as I say, the, the title of the paper is what happens when the network fails. Now you all know me for my drawing, my cheerful drawing of, of networks that sustain life, either economically or through kinship. What I think is intriguing about the modern slavery storyline in the heart of the village is that it is a, it's very, it's a very bare life example of what happens when you're unable to weave any form of network. Your network is bare. You are, it's a subsistence relationship. And, and again, on, on, on this, this um, um, Achilles and Baby, looking at the history of colonialization and colonialism and imperialism, argues that um, some lives are more grievable than others. And that's a point that Judith Butler's picked up as well, you know, and sorry, I'll go on. So this is, this is all more bare life, whatever life. So, so these are the, these dangerous radicals. It's always nice to have a look picture of Foucault because he looks more miserable than anybody ever. That's a Killingman baby whose book Necropolitics from 2003, I thoroughly recommend and Judith Butler. Um, and that um, afterlife is fantastic. There's also 
philosophers very interested in this, including Giorgio Agamben, and his, his definition of necropolitics is particularly interesting in the kind of British case at the moment, because who may live and who must die, he argues, is the ultimate expression of sovereignty. I find that very interesting that, you know, if you think about Brexiteers and their interest in the flag, they're not quite so interested in who exercises dominion over whom as regards inequality in our society, because up to 10% of our, our people are in situations so precarious that they you know, could lose everything with one bad day. I'll keep moving. I mean, actually, this is this is quite I quite like this, and this is from um, I want to say Owen Patterson, but he's the Welsh Secretary. Anyway, um, the point is to draw to draw some some Patterson. So to, you have to, and it's back to this embodied point. You this inequality infiltrates bodies down to the cellular level, and there are there's there is common currency between refugees and migrants, um, the imprisoned. Um, the ill, it's, 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 you know, depressing, but very interesting to explore those connections. So back to this um, table of the say, which I think is, in, which, I, which I, I, I like, what might be the way out of all this? Well, God, God knows, because, you know, the housing crisis is so entrenched, but there is an alternative to this precarity, which would be a rights-based discourse, right? If we talked about housing as in it was a right, and we talked about work as in it was a right, and life as if it was a right, then maybe we wouldn't be content to have so many people completely marginalized. And this is a more campaigning point. Oh, I've got to the end. Sorry, everybody. There, there's, I have more to say, but, but essentially, I don't know if everybody remembers this, this experiment. So as, as I said, what I'm famous for is this, this sort of, you know, um, this drawing of networks and the links between people and all the rest of it. This was a, um, some scientists gave spiders various drugs to see what the effect would be on their weaving of a web. So you can see, unfortunately, the metaphor, but the first one, that's a web that's going to catch some decent flies in it. Under the influence of all the other things, yeah, you, you know, you're starting to get a bit creative and possibly dysfunctional. Arguably, the, the dysfunctional web is one in which lots and lots and lots of people fall through and, ha and have no no base place to land. So uh, I just sort of uh, commend the diagram to you of um, <laughs> like sleeping pills. <laughs> um, I could, so the argument is, is that the, the dysfunctions to the way that we support life, as in life for everybody, living for everybody, rooted in the way that employment and housing no longer have much connection to one another or um, uh, are able to sort of, um, function to shore people up into a safe web um the the argument is is that under modern slave the conditions of modern slavery you're looking at what happens when networks fail Ta-da! thank you very much nicola there was a lot of uh, in the chat there was a real big up to the housing mention so it does seem that we are all now complete housing nerds academic <laughs> arches and uh, there's a lot of love for company arches stay for the social theory as well which is <laughs> which is exactly what's happened um and thursday is a new friday from janet but then somebody else saying no thursday isn't a new friday friday so where's the archers day oh god yeah every week every week yeah i know without fail without fail um 
And Claire also put in, Claire's had to leave now, but she did put in a, a petition uh, link with crisis that new government legislation is likely to increase the precarity and vulnerability of rough sleepers. And so a possible outcome of that could be there, um, you know, an increase in modern day slavery and the likes of Philip taking advantage of that as well. And there was also quite a lot of chat around that DCMS edict. Um, and that's something I've had to deal with in my role in a cultural institution as well. And, you know, it does put several things into quite a quandary um, to, to say the least. Um, are there questions or other comments that people want to make in response to Nicola's paper? There was a lot in there, Nicola. You did a sterling job. And I've got to say, there was a lot of content there which is in your chapter and a lot of content which is new. So you've done even more work. You know, <laughs> I, I, never, I never, never serve up the same thing twice. Um, Anybody want to challenge uh, my linking of the, the virus and the explosion and crisis and all that kind of thing? Anybody think that that's nonsense? I'm happy to um, to defend my <laughs> my thing. Or you're all too polite. There's a lot of missing going on, so maybe yeah, it's true. Kind of pointing that. I think ultimately, ultimately, I think um, knitting is the ultimate network building because you're building something that's going to catch people in your, it's crafting the net that, that you want to be in. <laughs> There's a request for you to put the Franz Fanon podcast in the, ref, in the chat. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's really yeah. good. For those of us who are not sociologists, um, I was just fascinated and taking notes. Uh, for oh, things thanks, to up. but however it all went by so quickly sorry so, for example um some of the agam agam ben and mm. judith butler and all those quotes i would really have liked to relish them is it possible to have your slide yeah of course That'd be to great. be honest I, I did notice that when i when i finally practiced it at length it was it was long so i think i, I did i did and also i don't know like it's a style thing. That's always how I do it. But some people don't really enjoy extend, extended quotations because they find it a bit like, oh, Olivia, we love it when it's long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I said, my uh, uh, reputation precedes me in terms of like, uh, you know, 900 slides for 20 minutes, isn't it? Isn't that about right? But yeah, of course, Ruth. And thank you very much. I mean, I find. It's really, really, I, I've really enjoyed preparing this paper. And as Cara says, like probably half of it is new content because I didn't do the virus stuff in the book. It's much more focused on labor housing. But, but I am very convinced by this specific form of neoliberal necropolitics that we're seeing because there are choices being made about whose life matters and whose doesn't in the pandemic, which is, which is chilling and Again, someone put in the chat about learning disabled people. It was in the news last night. The horrific. I mean, it's sort of whether it's because of difficulty with kind of adherence with with um, preventative measures or whatever. It was literally. I think it was a third of people that get the virus with learning disabilities die. Unbelievable. You know. And as we've seen all the way, all the sort of care home stuff just you know, just the, the horror 
of of again a necropolitical set of decisions being made with and all the assumptions that go with because it is the kind of you know, it, you know deciding who can support themselves um it, it's it's systemic and and that's this, that's kind of what i wanted to and that's what again I, I thought to myself oh i should probably have got a few boos in for philip and stuff but actually and not that i'm reward, you know overlooking the choices that he's made which are morally wrong but again the chartered institute stuff at the beginning was that this is endemic you know getting a building made getting a, getting a thing done is on the backs of somebody else and this is true in 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 all difficult um, and I think we just need to not look away from this stuff. I think, you know, as I say, my, my own recipe for surviving life is to look hard into these difficult things, but I just don't know how we can look away. And as I say, the, the pandemic stuff, when I saw that quote on that billboard, you know, staying at home with poor people bringing you stuff, that's what I've done, done all year, you know. And it's, and it, it must, it must mean something that, as I say, a black or brown face hops out of a car with a bunch of stuff to bring it into your house to keep you safe, but they're in the world and you're not. I mean, it's the, the necropolitics of the virus I find extremely interesting because it exactly in the same way that the crisis of the explosion lays bare some very unpleasant structural truths from behind and underneath. I should say as well that in the cultural sector with the you know very unfortunate redundancies that are having to be made um there's a lot that are working obviously there's working with unions but there are groups out there that people are working with to make sure that the cuts that are made don't disproportionately affect um people of color and don't you know who are traditionally unfortunately still the majority of them will be found in the lower rungs of pay bands in cultural institutions um and that's a very very serious task to to take on it's a, but you know absolutely an essential one too um because yes again you know there's there's another disproportionate potentially another disproportionate effect um on those who are front line for cultural institutions those who are invigilating in galleries, those who are, you know, taking the tickets and in the cafes and so on and so forth. There was a question from Jonathan, but it flashed up and went away because I'm on the wrong setting. What was that? Um, does the crisis, so actually, could you want to go to Jonathan, actually? Let's bring lovely Jonathan in. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I'm wondering is whether, the, the, clearly the crisis lays bare the structure of justice. Were it not for the structural injustice, would there be a crisis? Good point. So uh, I was on a, a thing recently where I described the crisis as intersectional in that it hits at the point at which one's existing vulnerabilities are stacked, right? So if you are uh, old, fat, black, male, you know, all of that together, that's like the that's your, they're your points of intersection. And the virus has a, a, an extremely interesting way of, of then, I, sorry, my metaphor has gone wrong, but you know what I mean? It, it, it hits at exactly the points of connection. And then that's why the, the vulnerabilities become multiplied. 
It's a really bold question, actually, Jonathan, because I think that it has been demonstrated that the um, the vaccine for the virus is equality. But we gave up on equality so long ago, it's kind of almost sounds like, I mean, and that's what I think is interesting is that you immediately reach for injustice because of your, you know, how you understand these things. But, but the idea that justice is actually the, the right stuff be at the forefront of public policy on employment or housing or any of it, it, it hasn't been true. I mean, you know, I don't want to, to, to you know, be, you know, since 1979, a rights discourse and a justice discourse has been a minority concern. Um, I don't know if you want to come back. So I, I, I think that's fascinating. It is, it is the, 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 the lack of justice in, in the, public, the public square. That it, uh, and one of the fascinating things though about, about the pandemic is the way in which globally it's played out that actually some of the wealthier economies are more badly hit. Yeah. Though they're, they're more badly hit in the poorer parts than all of the wealthier economies. Mm. And I think that's right. And I think that's why it isn't just about rich and poor, it's about inequality. And we've known that for a long time, um, that you're better off, even if you have less, if there's less differential. But again, everything has been geared my whole lifetime. And again, you know, with Thatcher's children, although I'm very keen to point out I was still born under a Labour government. You know. um, <laughs> like, like these things are, these things are, are um, and that's why I quite, I'm very interested in the interface between politics and religion, as, as you know, because I wouldn't be comfortable talking about justice, but I am comfortable talking about rights. And but then I'm happy to stand next to somebody talking about justice. It's about who, who you keep company with, right? But, and again, that's a very sort of, it's a tiny distinction for me, but I just, you know, the moral imperative to deal with structural inequality seems to me an issue that is beyond just the faithful or communities of any kind. We have to find some common cause in saying we can't, we can't put up with this. You know, I think that's what's what's interesting, or there's lots that's interesting about COVID, and obviously, I say this with a caveat as well because it is just horrific and tragic in so many ways. But it is a very intersectional thing, so it it will affect women disproportionately. It will affect people disproportionately through class, and it ties into, of course, issues of racial justice but also also climate justice as well so this is this is why i think you know when people say the word reckoning against this i can understand why that word is being used for this because it is it is so cross-cutting in that sense but i think you're very right nicola in the issues that it does surface are the ones that have been brushed under the carpet deliberately marginalized deliberately you know put upon so on and so it's it's that's the challenge of this and I, I, so, I so, so the thing that the, the virus point, you know, how many times have we watched those men on those press conferences talking about work, work from home if you can. If I work from home, 10, 15 people in the economy are being pushed out of their houses to bring me things. That's just, that's just the reality, whether they are delivery drivers for Waitrose, who we assume are partners in Waitrose and all the rest of it, or whether they are gig economy, precarious, 
you know the the entire premise of working from home suggests someone else is doing all your um care someone else is supporting your life and the the reciprocal and that's in the house god forbid you know your child care your emotional labor your stuff is being taken care of because you can just focus on your computer screen like come along but then you're the recipient you know reciprocally you're um reliant on you know sorry you go no no not that not to sound at all but um gareth davis has just um brought a really good point here um uh, Gareth, I don't know if you want to speak to that, but I have a response to that as well. So if you're there, Gareth, if you do want to unmute yourself and, and talk about that perspective, you're welcome to, of course. I can't see Gareth, unfortunately. He's tipped over onto the second side for me. Hang on. Thanks, Cara. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Thank you. Hi. I, I work in local government and... Part of the experience of trying to get really difficult public health messages out over the last nine months in terms of trying to tackle the issue of people surviving COVID-19 has just kept giving me flashbacks to the 1980s when we lived through an unprecedented public health crisis, trying to communicate with some really marginalised people, ourselves, about not dying essentially and so it's, it's been a really odd experience because whilst straight friends are having to confront the public health crisis for the first time in their lifetime in many cases for me it's just been oh yeah we've been here before but a face mask is just a, a condom for social intercourse um, and, and to me it, it's been less of a shock almost than it has been for other people you're right. I, I, think I think that's a really interesting point, Gareth. So um, HIV AIDS has been in my life since I was about seven, uh, being brought up in the gay community in the 80s and lost a lot of people that were part of my upbringing. Um, but I then went on to, to work um, for quite a while with Terence Higgins Trust um, around messaging for to go and get tested and you know safe sexual practices and so forth and we did a lot then around negotiated safety so what were you happy with behavior in yourself and with others um, the messaging of you know it's not as simple as to say just go and get tested you know that's the right thing to do that isn't a message that necessarily is going to work and there is so much knowledge globally um, around from, from HIV AIDS campaigning with the likes of Terence Higgins Trust and many, many others. And yet this isn't a field that anybody in public health seems to have gone to. And talking to a friend of mine who is an HIV researcher still, they were saying, actually, there's a real, there's a homophobia in that. And to go back, to, get, to go to that community and to say, give us your knowledge mm. is too big a thing to happen mm. because of the homophobia in it, because of still stigmas around HIV in that. So I, as soon as this did start, like you, Gareth, it did, it took me back to that time, mm. um, but very much keyed in for me. There is so much intelligence within HIV uh, campaigning healthcare, mm. but it's just not being attended to in this. 
because because it's the inherent um moral panic was that that plague you know god forbid and this plague you know there's you never you can never discuss aids and hiv without the politics of it being immediately enmeshed because exactly that was and that was necropolitical as well you know that the rampant 80s uh, in terms of excess and wealth and then you know the 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 way in which it was framed and the way in which gay bodies were, you know, and given a, a lower value than others. And that's always the thing is that that's what inequality is, isn't it? It's, it's a hierarchy of who gets, and that's why I'm completely convinced by the necropolitical, because who gets to live and who has to die is in is in it is in health decisions in the economy in housing in work it just it just feels like um it's hidden until the acuteness comes together you know to me and to, to kind of spark um and again the the long range crises that are ignorable compared with the ones that aren't there's something about the visibility and yeah that that uh, the, the judith butler book on which live which lives are more uh, are mournable and which aren't you know who's supposed to die invisibly yeah. and who's supposed to die visibly it's you know it's really ugly stuff yeah i mean also let's put it out there you've got hiv in the early days because of the sexual practice but um you know, was then legislated against, et cetera, et cetera. Had been legislated against then was in education. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was very easy for people to take a very, you know, and they did take a very moral stance against that, which yeah. is abhorrent. But of course now anybody can get it, but it's exactly, it's, it's through kind of intercourse. <laughs> you were right there about so the mask. It, the mask like, is a condom for social intercourse. But, I'm, you know, I'm you think that. about how quickly a vaccine has been rushed through now because of this. I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to do there. I, well, I am listen, aware all I will say is that if anyone feels that they are not uh, immersed in these politics, you've got to watch Pose, the two series of Pose. Yeah. Um, the, the drama, because they, you know, they go there. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's there. Yeah, really it's good from Roberta, would you like to speak to this, Roberta? But uh, she's saying maybe the next movement of patient advocacy will be the long COVID crew. And I tell you what, if um, it's like they, like they always say, don't they, that um, uh, a profession is degrading when you see more women in it. <laughs> like, you know, the long COVID, because it's been so arbitrary and it's taken, you know, what's interesting is in our area, our MP, so the next, the adjacent MP has been very vocal about having had long COVID, Andrew Gwynn, um, and he's more or less diarised the kind of weirdness of it, which really, really matched my husband's experience of long COVID. But again, there's still ne I've never heard anybody talking about long COVID in a real way. So and you end up being a little bit like you're whispering, like you believe in conspiracy theories. But it's tr long COVID is real, and it hasn't been. Um, it's not the exclusive reserve of one or other group. It's taken a section out of society. But a huge, like thirty percent of people that get the virus at six months are still really poorly <laughs> in an ME CFS brain fog way, which is hard to pin down. I think, Roberto, would you like to say something about this? Because I think you're absolutely right. It's got all the conditions 
for kind of creating patient advocacy, right? Because it's such a slice of life that are, that are suffering. Uh, yes. Um, I'd be willing to be corrected on my uh, short-term historical perspective, but it's my understanding that HIV and AIDS uh, formed the first real public advocacy of patients for patients, of people with a condition, um, as well as those mourning and so on. It, re it really became in the public domain in a very splashy way. And that publicity enabled other patient groups to form themselves mm -hmm. in a world before the internet uh, mm -hmm. was, was available to the general public. Um, the, the internet became available to us pretty much at the same time as antiretrovirals. So there's, there's a world before and a world after, um, roughly the, the mid-1990s. And so other patient groups, cancer patients, for example, have, are now routinely consulted by hospital trusts and so on in a way that, again, I would be willing to be corrected, I don't think they were before HIV and AIDS mm. activists made it necessary for the structures of uh, power and authority to engage with them yeah. by literally lying down in the middle of the street and chucking mm. fake mm. blood around. And, yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's a really yeah. powerful point. Yeah, and then the patient's charter came in, and that was with major. That would never have happened under Thatcher. No, and, no. you know, regardless of what people think about the patient charter, I think that was a first signal to, to exactly what you're saying about it. Yeah, right, you know, a signal for that. And a whole, you know, the exact, you know, history of mobilisation, you know, the idea that... Um, Quickly from gay men who were very well informed they had their own networks mm. to other communities, particularly Black African and Black Caribbean communities. And again, we support those with COVID now. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Just God, that's the hour. Did um, I talk, how did I talk to yeah, you? Yeah, that's very really good. <laughs> very quickly, when we're talking about... Ever have HIV? Did anybody in Ambridge ever know anybody with HIV or AIDS? Has it ever, ever been mentioned on the archers? And now I'll show oh, uh, Now, this is a, an element of controversy because at the time when EastEnders had a storyline with Mark Fowler, um, I, I don't remember how that played out because I didn't watch Senders, but there was some flirting with a notion of it and they backed away from it. So I'm, I'm older than people than I would be clearer on this. There was one of those sort of um, slight, slight red herrings about health crises that, you know, people could have knitted together, but they, back, they backed away from it. But it was, it was very... Um, Yes, that was this, Karen. That was when Kenton was going to be gay. <laughs> um, 
Um, anybody want to? I think their... I'm gay, but actually it's a thyroid problem. <laughs> thyroid problem. Well done, Jonathan. Anybody else got a clear recollection of the possibility of Kenton being exposed to HIV and AIDS? Oh, no, I will say we're talking died. about some of the long history um, in, in the chat, the long history of this. Um, the Long View on Radio 4 has had a programme there looking at health crises um, in England and how we've recovered from that. And it's, it's, a, it's a lovely series, presenter aside, sort of thing. I think it's a fantastic series. And the one there, which was about the flu pandemic and likening that back to COVID, was a really, really good listen. So I do recommend you're trying to get in pet. No, it, it's okay. Um, Pam's just put it up on the chat. Kenton was in the Merchant Navy, and I think that was the the sort of link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God. Um, yeah, well, yes, maybe it's... Karen, you want to talk, my lovely, and you've been polite enough to raise your hand. Amazing. Can't hear you. So you're on mute, Karen, but it might be your headphones. Uh. Very good. Thank you, Sally. Karen, we can't hear you. I think it's going into your headphones. I think Karen is now typing. <laughs> Uh, I want to speak to Sarah Kate Mary, who's looking very smurf-like this morning. Hello, lovely. I'm loving the fact in the chat you were like, everyone's always on about neoliberalism in my research group, but we haven't got the necropolitical yet. So you can take it and stuff it right up those neoliberal types, because my feeling is that, and as I said, I don't know if I explained it clearly enough, the neoliberalism playbook does a certain set of things but it doesn't necessarily put you in the death cult that necropolitics does. <laughs> so if you accept uh, neoliberalization as the kind of economic, and then you just need, it's not much of a step to bring the necropolitical to bear. But yes, I would like to say everybody, it's not, it's not routinely done. So, you know, go me. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, um, this is my first time here. It's very new. So. Oh, hello. hello. <laughs> uh, it's lovely to see other Archers fans. Um, I, I, I must admit, I didn't expect to be keep speaking about COVID. <laughs> I thought, obviously, an escape from COVID, but obviously Sorry. not. And of course, I've, I've been really interested to hear the, the thread of how obviously everything is related and the the horses story is, you know, we can easily relate that to what's going on. And I noticed on the chat, somebody had said um, that the vaccine would be equality. And I, I'm because I'm looking at the screen, looking at the chat, I, I'm not sure what context that was said in. So I just wanted to get on my soapbox for two minutes and um, say that I'm really frustrated that we, we do think that the vaccine is going to be a magic bullet and that we're looking for a cure and the politicians are looking for a cure. All they want to do is stamp it out and continue with the way we live because it suits them. 
And we need to look at the root cause. And that does link us to this modern day slavery because we all know it, um, the origins were in the wet markets. And the people who catch these animals and cage these animals and, you know, the sort of um, ideal conditions for this to thrive in, for them, doing that job is a matter of life and death. If they don't catch a wild animal and kill it and sell it, the family aren't going to eat. And that, you know, that's just the inequality of society, the hierarchical, you know, capitalism and, and people are terrified of change. We are, we all are on micro level and on a macro level, certainly the politicians and everybody who's um, gaining from capitalism, they don't want it to change. Mm -hmm. And we just need a politician who is brave enough to instigate a fundamental change. We need to change fundamentally the way we live. So, yeah, and it is you know, an encroachment on, you know, onto the lands where, you know, that have previously mm -hmm. been rainforests or whatever, where people are catching these animals. And, and, you know, that's, again, that's that's a human population issue. That's a climate issue. And on we go. There was a very funny tweet, and I forget who did it, saying about the vaccine and its rollout, that Dominic Cummings wanted it to go to everybody from Oxbridge that got a first. And Boris Johnson wanted it to go first to um, ladies between 25 and 35. <laughs> and that was the order of priority for our government, which I think has probably got a bit of truth in it. <laughs> so I'd just like to say welcome, Kathleen. Uh, it's taken an hour to get from um, welcome to academic archers to violent insurrection and revolution. So I'd just like to say our work here is done and... Um, you know, clearly we're we're like a recruiting um, recruiting standard for um, <laughs> for deep radicalism, as I say. Come for the cake and stay for the social theory. <laughs> Is there anybody who would like to challenge my analysis? I'd like a bit of pushback. Does anybody think that it's, there's too many jumps between the the horses and COVID and structures? I mean, is there anybody who feels? Um, implicitly or inherently that that it's that it's not or maybe actually help me out jonathan maybe maybe the maybe um it's amoral to 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 leave philip's kind of own set of choices out of the analysis and focus on structural factors as i said at the beginning you know the, the structure um the structural factors there are there is of course still free will within all of that sorry i'm massively roaming around but help me i i i uh, this is why i said i'm not a sociologist so by training i'm philosopher so actually the ethics and the morality the lying the philip so this is why I'd like to see, I can't say if your argument holds good or whether I want to push back against it because I can't understand, because I don't have the references. And that's why it would be lovely to see your slides, you know, and then really get into all the references and go and look up, look up all the people you've thought about and then see if you make a jump or not. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, that's very so fair. that would be great. Thank you. Um, Nicola, send me the slides and we can put them um, on the website. So Jonathan, I un you're unmuted. Come on, give us something. Thank you. Um, I, th I think the answer is it's a both and. 
isn't it, actually? Um, I mean, I, I'm going a bit tangent here, but one of the things I've been thinking about is apocalyptic literature and the way in which a lot of uh, religious literature about the last things actually is about points of crisis and actually is about the exposure of injustice and, and the unjust gets their comeuppance. Um, and, one of the, and, and there were two, very broadly speaking, there are those who, it seems to me, opt out of the conversation and say, this is all about something that's going to happen and you just wait for it. There are others who say, actually, this is about a challenge to my personal morality. So the question is, how do I behave within this big picture? And it seems to me that's where Philip, I mean, I think, you know, the housing market creates all sorts of problems, I think, probably for, for the construction industry, and particularly for the small firm. But actually, what Philip did within that, that big picture is make some very wrong choices. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, I just was, it was interesting because, um, again, my version yesterday, which is the first time I really had to think about it, I realised I hadn't really mentioned Philip. So I just kind of implicitly had just removed his agency and, you know, he has done something which is morally reprehensible. He has taken advantage of vulnerable people and he has profited on their physical bodies and their labour in a way that is morally reprehensible. But what maybe as a sociologist, I just had just, I just, it just had so many resonances for me with the, with this thing about some lives are more grievable than others. Um, and that's why Sarah Cates, what I'm just saying is that, you know, um, neoliberalization theory takes you so far, but it doesn't get really sexy until you make it a death cult. And that's why, you know, these life and death decisions in the pandemic, that's why, for example, there's so much kind of hate, you know, this, this sort of antipathy around Dominic Cummings, because the feeling is that his neoliberal necropolitics were just a little bit too naked for everybody, you know, as in he, he said, would say, I mean, you know, was joking that anyone that got a first should be saved, but I think, I mean, some of the stuff that was that emerged when he was at the DFE about kind of innate intelligence and eugenics, that, like eugenics, which is the, the most sort of, um, that's the most clear um, who gets to live and who gets to die, because you're trying to design out, you know, flaws and things. Eugenics did not die just because the Nazis got really into it. There are a lot of people who have eugenic sort of um, tendencies. They just don't know how to express them um, in a way that is socially acceptable. It's just, you know, I, I mean, and, and... Well, I, 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 I sort of would take a bit of an issue with that. My first degree was in social anthropology and I did that at Sussex University. And our first term was learning of the history of that discipline, which came exactly from eugenics. And there is a coterie of anthropologists now who are absolute eugenicists. Mm. but because they call themselves anthropologists and there's a discourse and a dis discipline around all of that yeah. um they're given a pass well not totally given a pass but you know they, they have mm. there something rich to hide themselves within or behind mm. um that, that gives them that, that leverage there yeah. and, and again and, and without you know the so <laughs> so dominic cummings before he was 
in number 10, just wrote these long rambling blogs. And the one that he wrote um, when he was at the DFE, which was called Some Thoughts on Education and Selection, it quotes really heavily from um, E.O. Wilson and those sociobiologists, which is as near as you can get to sort of a socially acceptable form of eugenics. And the story goes that he hawked it around several universities to try and get a PhD off it and nobody would supervise it because it was just too, A, it's mental, it's just so patchy, there's no follow through. But it's 100,000 words, I mean, technically, I suppose. But it is, and I, um, yeah, I, anyone who enjoys reading completely rubbish, complete rubbish, it is a eugenic, it's a piece of eugenic, um, it's it's fine trying to find a public policy language to cover over cover over a eugenic soul, um, and it deserves to be studied <laughs> as an example of, you know, this person should not be able to run around, let alone run a in a pub, let alone a country. He, you know, that, and that's what I mean about the sort of currents and the pitching up, the sort of genetic. Um, yeah, it's dark. That's dark. Emma Loveridge makes a really good point here and around the sort of the cognitive dis dissonance of, of Philip. Emma, I don't know if you want to unmute and and talk us through your thinking on that. Now I can't see Emma because I've got the chat open. I can see her. Hi, love. Yes. My, sorry, I was having some struggle with my cursor there. Um, no, not I'm cursing. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> no, of course I'm not cursing. <laughs> um, no, I was just thinking, and there's talk about, you know, Philip being reprehensible and that, but of course he doesn't see himself that way because he's justified to himself that what he's doing is saving um, the young men or boys or whatever they are from life on the streets and probably certain death and he's giving them a trade and everything even though he's not pro probably presumably not actually training them properly or anything um so he he knows that other people will see what he's doing as slavery but he's making it okay to himself yeah. um by not seeing it as that but seeing it as arguably philanthropic um, and I think in the same way, bullies don't see themselves as bullies, because if you really thought yourself to be that bad, you'd change, surely. Um, so he's seeing it, the good side of it. <laughs> so Playfair makes a really good point there, that, that Gavin is now the weak, link, the weak link for Philip. And people talking in a chat there about how Gavin had obviously bonded uh, with, you know, with them all over lockdown, getting food for them, playing Xbox and that kind of thing. So Gavin is now the weak link. And I thought it was very interesting in, I think it was the last episode where, you know, the anger in, in Philip's voice is like, no, you will continue to do this. I, it's just, and we've talked about, you know, this has come up in other chats as well, but where the breaking point is going to be. Mm. And but Philip does see Gavin as a weak link. And so how far are we going to see that in him as a father, not just a builder, not just as somebody who has slaves, but as a father, how far is he going to push his son into this? And again, the cognitive dissonance in that, I think, is a really, really interesting thing. 
I just want them to bring it to an end now, though. I know. It's, yes. <laughs> sorry, this is like, uh, and I think that they've got form because because it's back to when they do the big public information storyline. So with the coercive control one, they they got lost in it. And I think they're a bit lost in this as well. And it's because they take it seriously and they do all the research and they kind of you know, build themselves up to it. And I think that they there's some there's some port, something wrong about the getting out of it. And I know it's really hard. It's good. It's easy to set up these kind of dilemmas and and and. But I really think that they've done. It's done. You know anything. That I, you think, want, I it, think. I don't. I don't think COVID helped that. I don't think them having to switch their production necessarily helped. Yeah, that, so. and I'm not. I'm. You know me. I'm not like a pointing the finger at the writers person. But like, I just think. Um, in fact, Claire Asbury said last week, "What a brilliant get out it would have been because of the local authority, everybody in. They could just have put them at a, a homeless hostel, and they could have gone." But then the argument was that, of course, then they, they would never feel safe because they might say, oh, yeah, I was with this guy. And, you know, the whole thing would unravel later. But it would have, COVID could have given them a, an easy out. And the thing I was wondering was, how hard is it to stop being a slaver? And I said this, said this to everybody, you know, and the, and the feeling was uh, that um, it's hard because you can't trust that they will you know, the minute they're not under your control, then they could, that the consequences could come back. Same with coercive control. Uh, yeah. Olivia says, though, maybe we won't see Kirsty's heartbreak, and I'm sorry, the real evil Archer's fan in me is like, no, I really want to see her heartbreak. I do like her as a character. But, um, yeah, <laughs> really sorry about that. I'd love to see her heartbreak, yeah. I'm going to, there's some other questions there, Nicola, if you want to perhaps speak to those and things, but I think that's, that's a brilliant question. Paul, do you, want to, do you want to speak to your question or do you want me to read it out from the chat? Do you want to uh, open this up? Um, I'm, I'm happy to speak to it. Um, Hello. Hi, um, and really delighted to be here on my first ever uh, oh. Omnibus, so uh, it's, it's, it's great. And I'm uh, quite interested in this particular topic, but I'm... Um, also doing a little bit of research in case there might be an opportunity to uh, sometimes contribute in this, but no promises yet. And uh, I recognize that I'm a newbie, so- uh, No, I'll, you've I'll, said that now, we're gonna hold you my, to it anyway. I'll, I'll <laughs> I know, my, everybody presents, I mean, it's I'll not- <laughs> I learned my stripes before I uh, say, say anything more. No, but my my, my main uh, point mm. is um, we're, we're, we're talking about um, the, and I think the, the, the point about um, uh, necropolitics and uh, ultimate expression of sovereignty it was a, a, an incredible um, slide. And I think that really, for me, uh, brought out a lot. Um, and I think we can be looking at these big decisions. Is it uh, is it Boris? Is it Dominic? Is it, um, I don't know, Andy Street? Is it um, any, who's, who is sovereign in this? And should we be looking to those big uh, players parties to make the decisions are in and around how we control uh, what affects um, uh, modern slavery or what affects who lives or dies in relation to COVID. Is it at that level 
or do we all have a part to play? Because I, I live in a, I split my time between a small village in, in Oxfordshire and in South Central London. Uh, and I see very different individual social uh, community responses uh, to each of these things. And I do wonder whether uh, we're recoiling from the nosy uh, village life type mentality in Britain where we do have an interest in each other and some of that was well-meaning in the past to being very self-obsessed and isolationist so we don't spot uh, either whether it's uh, modern slavery going on under our noses or people being vulnerable uh, because uh, we're not mixing with them either due to COVID or because uh, our social cohesion is breaking down so at an individual level it's, it may be breaking down uh, and I do wonder whether uh, as we look at the families and the groupings within Ambridge uh, whether that uh, is is actually quite accurately borne out because the fact that nobody has really spotted this happening. It's a really good point. Absolutely, really good. And uh, you've successfully auditioned uh, for the next Academic Arches Conference. <laughs> actually, I'm just looking at the screen and most of the people on this screen have presented. I'm thinking to myself. And we do have a lot of people who are frontline workers or key workers in some way in our group as well. So there's a really good knowledgeable group on this. Kathleen, you have your hand up. Hi Kathleen and the newbie. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to add about um, the characterization of Philip, you know, that the, the split in him as an individual, this, um, you know, well, well-meaning, fitting into village life, make what he did a playground and charge next to nothing and and the split in him between that and the you know evil slave trader is is symbolic of our split in society that you know um somebody mentioned um philanthropy before you know i'm sure boris johnson thinks he's being very philanthropic being uh, philanthropic um, you know, paying people who are out of work £400 a month, you know, to him, that's a, so it, I just think it, the, the writing um, and the characterisation of Philip is, a, you know, a microcosm of how society is, that we, we've all got this dark side and there's the dark side in the character and the dark side in society. Gosh, it's almost like they put this stuff in there to keep us amused, isn't it? I mean, you know, amazing. Um, good, it's a really good point. Um, I'm, I'm still in the chat looking at people talking about what their communities are like under COVID. Um, which, you know, it, sorry, it's different to everybody. I'm sorry, I'm... A, God, it's 10 to 12, people of the world. I've no, stopped recording this now because it's such a long podcast. Um, I don't know if I've got enough room on my memory stick even to record it all. But um, I'm going to, yeah, let's let's pause the recording on here now. Thank you, everybody. It's a really fascinating Oh, before we stop, I want to say one thing about Boris's finances. There's, there's been all these rumours that he's really broke because of his, he's got all his alimonies and things. And, and there was sort of gossip about how we can't make it work on his £168,000 salary in the context of what you've just said, Kathleen. Um, and I just don't know. I think we're just all a bit discombobulated in our houses, but let's just let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nicola. <laughs> right. 